Okay, thanks, Robin, and thanks for inviting me. Always good to be here. Okay, so um, in uh, 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 Kubrick's uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, uh, we are uh, the origins of human behavior or modern human behavior are explained to us um, as like this. So, first we have the dawn of man, um, and we have uh, humans. Uh, on some sort of environment there, uh, sharing that environment with, as far as I can tell, tapirs. It doesn't really fit very well, but anyway, all our ancestors at least, not humans. And they're doing normal things, picking fleas off each other's bums and so on. And then, um, and then at some point, a black monolith arrives, and somehow this black monolith turns, uh, plus the sun, turns um, our ancestors, our primitive ancestors, into tool users. Um, still angry, but using tools, and they do things like they throw tools up into the air, and they turn into spaceships just outside of Saturn. <laughs> so it's a relatively small step from tool use to spaceships, so we're led to believe, and it all happens thanks to um, black monoliths that are floating around. I think it's Jupiter. I think it's Jupiter. It might be Saturn. So we're led to believe that it's a relatively small step to go from these primitive ancestors to these advanced creatures that we are. Um, and I suppose, although, of course, that's fiction, um, there is always a temptation to look for some critical event um, that explains this transition from these hairy things to these um, things in silver suits. Now, in fact, um, there does seem to be something of a rapid transition, at least in some parts of the world, to what we could call more complex or modern behavior. And many people have used the, terms, the term modern human behavior to refer to a particular collection of, uh, of uh, cultural traits um, uh, that are found in the archaeological record. Uh, this is usually associated with the Upper Paleolithic transition, as it's known in Eurasia, particularly in Western Eurasia. Um, for historical reasons, um, this, transition, this, this transition in terms of technologies uh, is known as the Late Stone Age in Africa. Others have called it things like the Human Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, and various other terms like the Michelangelo effect, and so on. And if you put this on the scale of human evolution in terms of humans using, making and using tools, it's actually a very recent phenomenon. So we have tool use starting around 2.5, 2.6 million years ago. And really, the first tools, these older man uh, industries were, well, I mean, I don't want to be rude, but they, weren't, they didn't change very much for about a million years. And then we have somewhat more shaped and advanced uh, stone tools. But again, those don't really change a great deal for over a million years. Um, we get some more, some more complexity in the Middle Stone Age, but it's only with the Late, uh, late Stone Age in Africa, or the uh, Upper Paleolithic transition, that we see much more advanced technologies. And I'll come to describe those in a minute. So just in summary, we have these two industries that last for around two and a half million years, where they make some nice stuff, but it doesn't really change a great deal. Uh, in the middle Paleolithic, where the Mosaterian in, in Europe and Western Asia is probably mostly associated with uh, Neanderthals, and they have somewhat more complex technologies, somewhat nicer stone tools, but still just stone tools, and the Aterian uh, in North Africa and possibly the Middle East. Um, 
uh, which is probably associated with modern humans. But then in the upper Paleolithic, and this is what we generally refer to as the uh, modern human behavior, we see an explosion in technological complexity. We see the first use of more fine stone tools like prismatic blades and burins, the first use of bone and antler to make tools, the first musical instruments, the first grinding, pounding um, stone uh, tools for processing uh, foods, um, the first clear evidence, although that does creep back into the Middle Stone Age, but of um, uh, body decoration, form of usage of ochre for body painting, teeth, ivory, and marine shells for, um, for necklaces and so on, and tattoo kits. We see uh, improvement in hunting technologies, including things like uh, spear throwers, boomerangs, and so on. We see clear-cut evidence of long-distance raw ex uh, exchange of raw materials, but most dramatically, obviously, is the art. Oh, the art. So it's worth putting quite a few pictures up of uh, Upper Paleolithic art, because if you look at this stuff, as I'm sure you already know, I, this one's my favorite one. Um, if you look at this stuff, it's very difficult to look at that stuff and not to be convinced that these people are substantially thinking in the same way as we think. And there's plenty of it, including this, this portable pornography and various other pictures. And some of these, uh, some of these images, of course, also including evidence of advanced hunting technologies like bows and arrows and so on. OK, so who did this stuff? Well, we have what we now know, we now know at least is um, five, well, okay, I use the species, I use the term uh, species very loosely here, so please don't attack me for using the term species, because um, we're not really sure if it applies to Minnesota. But we have at least these five um, uh, human, human-like groups uh, knocking around at the time of this big transition. We have humans, we have these new guys that have just been discovered uh, based on a tiny bit of, a bit of material and some DNA. We have these, these Neanderthal guys, Forensis and Homo erectus. So who was actually making this kind of, uh, these kind of technologies? Well, we were. We don't know. And almost certainly not. Now, we don't know about these guys, focus on these guys, we, don't know, we know very little about these guys except their genomes. Um, there is some evidence of burial, some ornaments, some advanced lithics, and there's evidence of pigment processing, grindstones. And this has been interpreted by people like Francisco Dierico uh, as showing that Neanderthals were already developing their own trajectory, or they were on their own trajectory towards a upper Paleolithic or an explosion in uh, uh, behavior in, in technologies. Others have suggested that Neanderthals were a bit thick and they were actually just copying um, uh, modern humans. And maybe that's a similar case for Denisovans. Okay, so when did this transition occur? Well, this is one of the really surprising things, is that it occurred at different places in the world at different times. And that, that timing is not, in general, coupled with the appearance of modern humans. It is coupled with the appearance of modern humans in Europe and Western Asia. So we see a rapid transition, and that's around 40, 45,000 years ago. And it's the, associated with that first permanent settlement of anatomically modern humans. In Southern Asia, the data is thin, but probably around 30,000 years ago, maybe more recently, maybe older, but we just don't know at the moment. 
North and East Asia uh, considerably later, although of course it's always possible that we're just not seeing that because um, the, material was used, uh, the material they were using was things like bamboo, which don't preserve very well. Australia, um, uh, considerably later than the arrival of modern humans, and some have even argued that you don't really see a full uh, uh, package of uh, modern human behavior technologies until somewhere around eight to 10,000 years ago. Although, obviously, the fact that they got there means that they got some decent technologies. They must have crossed open ocean, so they must have had some kind of advanced technologies at the time. But the weirdest place is sub-Saharan Africa, because we see a transient appearance of many of these features of modern human behavior in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in southern Africa, um, uh, in a number of sites like, um, uh, like Kleisis River Mouth and Blombos Cave, possibly Katanda, if you believe that as well. Um, you see a transient appearance between around 165,000 years ago, but then that disappears before making a dramatic re-emergence in the late Stone Age in Africa around onwards from around 40,000 years. So we have this kind of unusual distribution and this decoupling of appearance of modern, hum modern human behavior from the appearance of anatomically modern humans. And the Blombos Cave is probably the most often cited and most, one of the most interesting um, uh, uh, collections of material. Um, so in Blombos Cave, you clearly see, well, this is often usually cited as the first evidence of any kind of symbolic uh, art, um, this piece of ochre. But also we have things like threaded um, shells for, for body decoration and some pretty decent, and using bone as well to make um, tools. So clearly, clearly many features of modern human behavior are appearing <coughs> quite early, around maybe 90, 100,000 years ago in southern Africa before, making, uh, before disappearing and then making a later mere reappearance. And this has been explained in various different ways, but they basically fall into two categories. So one is that the cognitive abilities <coughs> necessary to to express this behavior were present prior to 50,000 years ago, but were simply weakly expressed for whatever reasons. Others, particularly um, uh, Richard Klein, have argued that those cognitive abilities appeared with the Upper Paleolithic, so with the appearance of a full package of markers of modern human behavior. And others have also um, uh, uh, indicated that this might be the case as well, including, interestingly, even Chomsky. You know, Chomsky's uh, suggested that that's, uh, that's one explanation. So, so there's, clearly, there's clearly a lot to be explained here. Another thing to be explained is that there is a real big decoupling, not just in space and time of the appearance of modern, with the appearance of modern, anatomically modern humans, but also there's a decoupling of uh, technological complexity and brain size. So we see brain size really going up, starting to increase around the time of the first tool use. And there are many, many explanations for that, as I'm sure you're all aware. But that brain size keeps on going up and really overshoots, in fact, with the Neanderthals um, before we start getting this massive increase in toolkit complexity. So it leaves a whole bunch of questions open. So were only anatomically modern humans behaviorally modern. Why did those early signs um, of behavioral modernity disappear in Africa? 
Why do we see such a dramatic appearance of those, those traits in Western Eurasia? Why in different places and different times? And why is there a decoupling between behavioral complexity and brain size? As a behavioral complexity as expressed in the archaeological record, I should say. Okay, so really you have to start with what are the causes, and there are a number of different uh, hypotheses here, some of which are overlapping. So we can, we can go for, of course, the biological ones. There are people who have talked about connection of uh, domain-specific modules in the brain, and others have just taken a very, very, uh, a much more sort of straightforward, reductive approach of uh, just brainy genes. New genes arising that just make you more intelligent. Um, there are cultural uh, uh, explanations like language advance. Of course, this could also be biological. We need the biological infrastructure to be able to speak. Um, but even if we have the biological infrastructure, it still may require some cultural evolution to improve uh, language and turn it into the general purpose toolkit that language is today. Uh, changes in social organization. Of course, this is a you know, um, often discussed ideas about the emergence of cooperation and so on, and this is something that people are forever trying to show different ways that that can happen. Uh, others have ar argued for uh, environment, a highly variable environment of the Pleistocene as something that's driving um, uh, the appearance of modern human behavior. And others, including um, what, most of what I'm going to be talking about today, have argued for demographic causes. So just very quickly through some of those, so I'm, I guess most of you will be familiar with with um, the work of Sperber, Mithen, and so on, um, arguing that, um, that cognition uh, is essentially domain-specific, but that there was a later emergence of uh, inter more integration of those specific domains of intelligence. So Mithen talks, for example, about natural history, technology, and social uh, intelligence. And then later on, those being connected more together, perhaps through the use of metaphor and so on. Sperber's talked about um, uh, a module of meta-representation of those different domains of intelligence. Uh, there's been plenty of work on brainy genes. Um, this, this one was one of the earliest ones to um, uh, be identified. Um, this is actually involved in uh, a gene involved in myosin in jaw muscles. And the argument here is that we, that, that stopped functioning properly. And that essentially re reduced the size of the jaw muscles, and therefore the requirement for a sagittal crest for anchoring. And this basically released up the cranium for, um, for um, growth of the brain. Thing is, that's been estimated to have occurred around two and a half million years ago. Um, FOXP2, everybody's heard of FOXP2. Um, fine. Uh, language gene, maybe. Um, the problem is, of course, Neanderthals have just the same FOXP2 as we do. Um, there are the, uh, uh, the HA genes. So these are the human accelerated uh, regions of the genome, where you can identify, you can look at re, uh, regions of the genome and compare between humans, chimpanzees, and so on, and so on, various other um, uh, animals. And you can identify regions that don't seem to have changed much in those other animals, that, but seem to have changed a lot just along the human lineage. So that's a very specific class of genes. It turns out there are a number of these, and most of them aren't even normal protein coding genes. They're actually RNA genes, the kind of um, dark matter of the genome. But we now know, of course, that RNA genes are increasing. They're becoming, we're understanding them to be increasingly important in control of gene expression. So they may be important. And in fact, the fastest 
the one that's most accelerated in the human lineage compared to other animals turns out to be one that's expressed in uh, uh, outer layers in the, um, in the brain. And then there's been a lot of work on microcephaly-associated genes, in particular work by Bruce Lahn and colleagues in the States, identifying a number of genes that are associated with microcephaly, and then um, they've used various genetic tests to show signatures of natural selection and have argued that a number of these genes have been under recent strong natural selection. Now, if you believe in the brainy gene argument, that's one thing. But if you believe in the brainy gene argument plus the Klein model that these, these signatures of modern human behavior only arose when the biological changes, presumably brainy genes, maybe some of these, um, occurred, well, we have a big problem there. And that's the problem of distribution. So if these brainy mutations arose in the last 40 to 50,000 years, well, then they're unlikely to have spread to fixation globally, because already major population groups in the world had separated. Now, if they if then spread through those populations after those populations had separated, that should leave a clear-cut signature in, the, in patterns of genetic variation in the human genome, and that should have been spotted. And nothing like that has been spotted. So, so therefore, what that would imply is that if there was a brainy mutation occurring around this time, then it would imply geographic structuring of cognitive ability, which is, of course, there's no evidence for that at all, as you can see. I can never find a map showing, I, I, I've searched the internet, I've never found a map showing the spread of anatomically modern humans that doesn't have overlaid onto it either a tree of Y chromosome or a tree of mitochondrial DNA, which is, is kind of irritating. But anyway, as you can see, modern humans have spread out prior to that point, um, and so there were human populations were globally structured prior to that time when these mutations um, are inferred to have occurred. Okay, another possible argument is language, and particularly one particular feature of language, which is, which is syntax. So uh, it's been proposed that prior to the Upper Paleolithic, language served primarily a social role, like a replacement for grooming, Robin and Leslie uh, have suggested. Um, but with, uh, with the development of syntax, it extended the role of language to make it a more general purpose um, tool. And others, uh, such as uh, John Bolander, have argued that, in fact, that syntax arose from a necessity for exoteric communication, so communication with individuals who don't speak your language. And what he's argued is that in those cases, then not, this goes back to the whole Russell, Bertrand Russell's idea about knowledge by reference and knowledge by description, that if you don't have syntax, you can only have knowledge by reference. You know, that's, that's, that's a cup, but it's only a cup because I'm pointing at it and saying that's a cup. But I wouldn't be able to describe a cup to you. And whereas with, you need syntax to actually describe what a cup is. And so some have argued that this may have been a critical um, factor in the origins of modern human behavior. Of course, there's cooperation. Many, many ideas about why cooperation arises. The extent to which co humans do cooperate is ridiculously high compared to, uh, to our close relatives. Um, there have been various arguments about um, punishment being important. Uh, the ideas of Boyd and Richardson about group selection, um, group selection for culturally transmitted um, institutions and traits. Um, there could have been increased and more regular payoffs for cooperation in the Pleistocene, perhaps because of variable environments. 
and others have argued simply for population viscosity as being a mechanism by which cooperation can arise in local groups. Problem is, we don't really know when human cooperation did evolve to the extent we see it today, or when most of that evolution occurred, but anecdotal evidence suggests that it predates anatomically modern humans. So again, we come back to this basic idea that we're looking for a key for the lock, that there's going to be one overarching, super powerful explanation for the appearance of, of modern human behavior, and going back to Hubrick and bones thrown in the air and spaceships and, and black monoliths. But in fact, the reasons could, of course, be more subtle and more benign. So there are environmental explanations, for example. We know that the Pleistocene is a period of rapid and dramatic um, um, climate fluctuations. There's lots and lots of climate volatility in this period of time. And so that, and plus, plus humans expanding into new environments, and new environments occurring all the time through rapid climate change, may have stimulated the development of new hunting technologies, such as spear throwers, harpoons, and so on, and so on. Um, and, and also, uh, particularly Pete Richardson is now arguing that Pleistocene, Pleistocene climate volatility would have, um, would have favored cultural transmission over genetic transmission. Because one thing about, if, if you can adapt, adapt to an environment by cultural change, it's much, much quicker than adapting to an environment, a new environment by genetic change. Genetics is very, very, very slow, or biological evolution is very, very slow compared to cultural evolution. So he's argued that, in fact, that this volatility drives or increases the value of culturally inherited uh, adaptive traits. But that doesn't really help to explain um, what we see in Africa or this early appearance of modern human behavior in Africa. Others have argued for, um, particularly when it comes to symbolic behavior, for increases in population density may have led to greater group contact. And that things like body or ornamentation, decoration could have been used to mark group uh, uh, group inclusion or group belonging or group identity uh, as an increasing number of strangers are encountered. And then finally, um, uh, uh, some have proposed that demography is a critical factor in the origins of modern human behavior. So Stephen Shannon showed that larger populations have a major advantage over smaller ones in the accumulation of beneficial, and this is the key thing, beneficial um, traits. And that just goes back to, this. it's basically the same argument as with genetics. Natural selection works well in large populations, and it's fairly rubbish in small populations, because in small populations, drift overpowers selection, or tends to overpower selection. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to apply that, that principle to cultural evolution as well. And Chris Stringer, um, without giving a mechanism, proposed that the effects of population size on the accumulation of culturally inherited skills was an integral explanatory component of the appearance of modern human behavior. But he didn't provide any mechanism for this. OK, so now I'm going to try to give an, uh, a, a demographic explanation for why it does happen. 
And this involves, this is a cultural evolutionary model. So I'm sure most of you know this, but I'll just go over it very quickly anyway. So human culture is an inheritance system. It's just the same as a genetic inheritance system. There are skills, behaviors that are transmitted across generations. There are changes or mutations in those skills that can be generated, and they can be generated through a number of mechanisms, such as deliberate innovation, um, inaccurate learning, or the mixing of different skills. And that's analogous to genetic recombination. So you might, for example, have a bow for making some nice music and a small spear, and you put them together, and you end up with a bow and arrow. So it's kind of similar to genetic recombination. And there are mechanisms that we can define for cultural transmission. So cultural trans trans traits are transmitted between encultured individuals, or I'll refer to these as models, um, and naive individuals across generations and also um, uh, at the, in the, um, among individuals in the same generation. And they can go via three major transmission routes. So the first is vertical transition, tra transmission. So this is when individuals acquire their culturally inherited skills from their biological parents. Or you could have oblique transmission where individuals acquire their culturally inherited skills from any individual in the adult generation. And of course, you can also have horizontal transmission where individuals acquire their skills from peers. Now, those transmission routes are then affected by a number of different forces. And we can, we can break those down to a first order approximation, at least, into um, biases in what is transmitted. So, for example, cultural models are selected from an adult generation. So individuals that you learn from are selected from an adult generation, non-randomly, by naive individuals who are doing the learning. And they can be choosing those individuals based upon either direct bias. So direct bias is when you choose to learn a skill from an individual who is good at that skill. Okay, so that's direct biased transmission. You're choosing to learn based on the perceived ability at the skill you are seeking to learn. Then, of course, there's indirect bias. So this is where learners choose the person to learn their skill from, not based upon that person's perceived ability at that particular skill, but some more general perceived quality of the model, the person they want to learn from. And of course, people can also choose according to the frequency of a particular trait in a population. But just like genetics, these are, these are essentially selection forces, but just like genetics, there's also cultural drift. And this is always a force that has to be considered. So this is analogous to cultural drift. Random variation in the frequency of cultural traits across generations simply due to sampling in a finite generation. Genetic drift is just sampling in a finite generation. So using these ideas, uh, in 2002, Henrik and Boyd proposed a model for cultural transmission that could relate, uh, could relate population size to the accumulation of culturally transmitted skills. And what they showed was that direct bias transmission, so remember, direct bias transmission is when you choose to learn from somebody who you perceive to be good at the trait you're trying to learn. So in, in direct trans bias transmission can lead to the accumulation of skill. Now, this is a really important point, really worth 
listening to this bit. So they are concerned with the ability to do something skilled. That can mean a number of different things. It can, for example, mean as a monotonic marker, we can just imagine a quantity of scores, a monotonic marker. So that could be the ability to make a particular thing, like an arrowhead. How good is your arrowhead? But it can also equally refer to the breadth of a toolkit or the breadth of skills that you have. Um, or it can, or, um, in, for example, stone tools or something like that. Or it can equally apply to the ability to achieve an aim in a given domain. So that, for example, could be to bring down a mammoth or to bring down a gazelle or something like that. And in their model, they made certain assumptions. So they assumed that cultural transmission includes directly biased oblique transition. So directly biased means you're copying the individual who you perceive to be good at the thing you're copying, the skill you're copying. And oblique transmission is that you can copy anybody in the adult generation. You're not just stuck with your parents. And they also assumed that the, inheritance, the cultural inheritance process is incomplete and inaccurate. So what they have is cultural transmission. The cultural transmission process is um, you, uh, individuals in a, in a naive generation choose a cultural model, and then they learn from it. It doesn't have to be their parent. Incomplete and in inaccurate transmission um, means that when you learn something, you learn with either gain or loss, and mostly with loss of skill. Okay, so you don't do as good a job as the person you're learning from. Now, that's easy, to, uh, that's easy to imagine. I mean, if you have a constant level pianist and you have 10 people learning from the constant level pianist, maybe one or two would actually end up better pianists, but most won't. Most will end up worse. Right? And this is the same. Presumably, it's the same at universities as well. It may not be. <laughs> uh, so, so in order to model that process, they used... They used it actually works with just about any distribution you want to use, but they, for, for certain analytical conveniences, they use the Gumball distribution, which is actually just an offset Poisson distribution. So they, they assume that if you take a Gumball distribution, you can define that by two parameters. One is a dispersion parameter, so this is essentially just the width of this distribution. And another is the offset uh, parameter. So this is the average amount of loss of skill when in a learning event. So if you imagine that a model, a cultural model, or an individual that knows how to do something, like make a bow and arrow, has this level of skill at making a bow and arrow, then somebody comes along and wants to learn from them, the amount of skill they have is essentially picked at random from under this distribution. Okay, so you pick it at random, so most of the time you're going to pick in this space, this white space here, which means you're not going to do as good a job as the person you're learning from. But sometimes, either because of inaccurate, lucky inaccurate copying or because of deliberate innovation, just being cleverer, uh, sometimes the person who's learning might actually do a better job. Okay, so this is effectively, this is adaptive innovation space when people pick from somewhere in this part of the distribution. So we, the point here is that we can define this process by only two parameters, which is the average degree of loss and this dispersion parameter, or that's the outcome of random noise in the learning process. Okay. So what they did was they used this model, and using that model, they were able to show analytically, which is always nice if you can do it, 
um, using the price equation, that there was a relationship, a direct relationship, between the population size and, and the amount of skill required, and the amount, and, sorry, the population size, uh, the critical population size at which skill would accumulate as opposed to being lost in a population. And, that, and it depends on the complexity of the skill. So they showed that the complexity of the skill can be defined by this, by alpha over beta. So what that simply means is that if you have a complex skill, imagine it like this. Imagine that you have a population size of one. Okay? So individual skilled, individual learning. Now, if on average the amount of skill in the learner is less than the amount of skill in the, in the person they're learning from, if on average that's the case, then over time skills should decay to zero. But if you have population size and individuals are able to pick the most skilled person to copy in a population, then you have a means by which skills can be maintained. But that is dependent on the population size and on the average degree of loss, which is just alpha over beta. So you can imagine here, for example, that if you have a large alpha, and a small beta, then it means that very few individuals who, in a learning event, are actually going to do a better job than the person they're learning from. Whereas if you have a small alpha and a large beta, then a large proportion of individuals who are learning are going to do just as good a job as the person they're learning from. So you, might, you can just define that as skill complexity. It's just a parameter, really. It collapses to a single parameter, which is skill complexity. And that's not hard to imagine. Hard, easy things to learn, most people don't do a good job. Hard things to learn, not many people do a good job. So using, so using this analytical solution, they showed that there's a critical population size for any particular skill complexity that you need to go above in order for a population to maintain that skill as opposed to just losing it or it decay it. Okay. So, so population size is critical for maintenance of technology. And they used this result to explain um, the, uh, uh, what's, what's seen in the archaeological record in Tasmania. So humans arrived in Tasmania around 34,000 years, possibly earlier, of course, but from archaeological evidence, around 34,000 years. But Australia, because of the um, uh, rising sea levels, was cut off, uh, cut off from Australia. Tasmania was cut off from Australia around 10,000 years ago. So th at that point, the population effectively became isolated. And from the point of isolation onwards, you see, a, you see a loss in the archaeological record of a number of different skills that were maintained before. So you see the loss of bone tools, cold weather clothing, fish hooks, barbed spears, fish traps, nets, um, uh, spear throwers, and boomerangs. So when, when Europeans arrived in Tasmania, they were pretty impoverished in terms of their technologies. In fact, they were very impoverished in terms of their technologies. Uh, and they were all murdered by the Europeans. But, so, but the key thing is the archaeological record shows a gradual loss of these technologies over time. So that fits very well with this model, that if you, if, when, it, when the population gets cut off, so then the population size is effectively smaller. And therefore, it goes below a critical threshold for maintaining these kinds of technologies. And therefore, they should decay over time. So it explains that quite well. At least, I should say, to a first order of approximation, it explains it. But there are a number of unrealistic assumptions in this model 
um, that would have to be met or have to be dealt with in order to apply it to trying to explain the appearance of modern human behavior. So the first is that individuals can accurately determine the most skilled person in a population to copy. Now, you might be able to do that in this room, but you certainly wouldn't be able to do that in the whole of Tasmania um, 10,000 years ago. Okay. You're not going to be meeting them. And also, it's, and also, people make mistakes about making judgments about who's the best. Um, the people <laughs> make that mistake all the time, I, I suspect. Um, also, so that's, that's one problem. And also that everybody is able to copy the most skilled person. Well, that's also a fantasy. I mean, you know, to get access to individuals to learn their skills um, requires some negotiation itself, or, well, or fees of £9,000 a year. <laughs> and the other, the other key unrealistic assumption of that model oops, is that, oh, well, okay, so I'll, I'll come back to the other one uh, in a second. So, we kept, so what we did was we developed a way of dealing with these unrealistic assumptions. So I'm going to deal with this one first. So one way of dealing with this unrealistic assumption about the ability to identify the most skilled individual and everybody copying that most skilled individual is that we generate a more natural oblique transmission model. So you imagine you've got an adult generation. Each individual has some degree of skill in some domain, some making something or breadth of toolkit or, or the ability to achieve an aim in a given domain. Those individuals have their own biological offspring, and they go through a learning process. Well, this is common sense, right? I mean, people learn first from their parents before they learn from others. So they go through that learning process, okay, using this gumball distribution and picking at random from here. This is that skill level, and then an individual picks at random in this distribution, ends up with some skill level. Then, that individual compares the level of skill they have to those in the adult generation, ignores those that are less skilled at that, in that particular domain, and then chooses other models or other individuals to learn from. Um, and that choice is probabilistic and scaled by the difference in the level of skill they have and the level of skill of the potential people they can learn from. Okay, so this is like going to university. So you left home, you learned stuff from parents, now you're going to go to university, and then you're looking around for who knows the best compared. To, and you already found out, well, I actually know more than this lecturer about this thing, so I'm not going to go to their classes, but I might go to somebody who clearly knows a lot more than I do. And you pick that probabilistically. Then you go through that learning process again. You obtain a new skill level, and then you simply take the best one out of those. Pretty much to a first-order approximation and in a highly reduced way how we learn and how we, how we deal with learning. Okay, so then we throw away the smaller one and that's what we end up with. So we, so we, can, we can simulate that process. The second problem, the second unrealistic assumption is that the world lives in one population. That's, of course, the fantasy. In reality, the Pleistocene world was made up of separate subpopulations that were connected by some kind of migratory activity. So to deal with that, we simply simulate separate subpopulations of 
Each subpopulation has n individuals. And then those individuals go on some random walk. And it turns out, if you go on a random walk, you end up with a Gaussian distribution. Or this bloke, this bloke here in 1905 showed that if you go on a random walk, you end up with a Gaussian distribution in terms of your endpoint locations. So we can relatively easily simulate that migratory process. And we, of course, know that different groups are, are, are connected to an extent by migratory activity. How much migratory activity is, of course, an open question. Now, to incorporate all these processes, you can't solve that analytically. Probably God couldn't solve that analytically, if indeed he exists. So what we have to do instead is we have to simulate that process in a computer and explore the effects of different parameters. So what we do, we set up a world uh, consisting of a number of subgroups. Each of, those groups under, oops, each of those groups undergoes our learning cultural transmission processes, so each individual does, does their learning. Um, doing that learning process according to skill levels and so on, and then they go on a random walk, and some of them are deemed to have migrated to neighboring groups. But there are a number of parameters we have to consider here. So one is group size. How big are these populations? Well, studies of contemporary hunter-gatherer societies suggest a number somewhere between 100, 150 preachers are converted here. Right? Um, uh, also, of course, Robin's work has suggested these magic numbers around 100, 150 uh, individuals as a typical group size for um, uh, Pleistocene humans. Now, assuming a sexual division of labor and assuming that half the population is subadult, then we can then fix the population size in any generation at around 25. So we can then simulate that process forward. So here's just a simulation. It's not particularly interesting. It's just a demonstration of one. So each dot here is a separate population group. Okay. And then we're allowing them to go through this learning process. Each individual in each of those populations is going through that learning process, and they're doing some migration between. And then what I've done is I've taken the average skill level, accumulated skill level in each population, and I've interpolated it as a surface just to give you some sort of visual appreciation. One of the dynamicness of skill accumulation in different populations. And two, that you get these kind of local, I suppose, was it Harold Wilson, wasn't it? White heat of technology in certain, certain areas. But the key thing to take away from that is that it's a dynamic process, that you would expect fluctuations in technology levels in different populations over time and in space. So we can now use this model to ask a number of very basic questions. So first question, does increasing the number of subpopulations increase the level of skill that can be maintained in a meta world? So in a world of all of those subpopulations. Okay, so it's a pretty basic and obvious question. So the answer here is actually a little bit surprising. So the answer is obviously yes. And the reason it's yes is because if these groups are connected by migratory activity, then they're forming a metapopulation. So the bigger the metapopulation, so then we know from the Heinrich model, the more skill should be able to be maintained. But, and this is the really interesting thing, that in increase in the level of skill that can be maintained plateaus out after around 50 to 100 populations. So what that means is that if you start adding populations in a world, and then individuals are migrating between those subpopulations in that world, then adding more populations will increase the overall amount of technology that's maintained, only up to a point after which you don't get any more increase in technology. Now that is 
an important result because it may go some way towards adding to this idea about what went on in Tasmania. Even though Tasmania is, a, is not a big island, it's big enough that I, nobody would suggest that every single individual in Tasmania, after it was cut off from Australia, was able to know every other individual in Tasmania. Of course, it was uh, consisted of a number of separate groups connected by migratory activity. But it's also likely that the number of groups in Tasmania was below 50 or 100. And if that's the case, then it's not about the overall population size, but the number of separate groups that's critical for this maintenance, or in this case, loss of these technologies. So, we, so what this is showing is that, or what, what would, this would suggest is that Tasmania, when it got cut off, the number of groups was sufficiently small that the number of groups itself is affecting the amount of skill that can be accumulated. Okay, another question. Does increasing the density of subpopulations increase the level of skill that can be accumulated or maintained in a meta world, in the whole world consisting of many different populations? And the answer to that is that, well, that that's somewhat more obvious, and the answer to that is yes, it does. Because density affects migratory activity. If you have groups living closer together, you should have more migration between those groups. And we can see that. We see that across a whole range of different parameter values for the complexity of the skill, the population densities, the migratory activities, and so on. You just see this as a general rule across all of those different parameter sets. The more interesting question is, can stable spatial structuring of skill accumulation occur? Now, this is the one that goes to the heart of the problems with the appearance of modern human behavior. Remember, the weird things that we have, one of the really weird things we have is that we have a world where we know people must have been to some extent connected by migratory activity, albeit low, but to some extent. And yet we have high-skilled areas and low-skilled or areas that do go through this transition of accumul accumulating and maintaining complex technologies and ones that don't even though we know that they're biologically related, even though that we know that the people were there in those low-skill areas, possibly for longer in some cases, and that we know that they must, to some extent, have been uh, exchanging migrants. So can we get stable spatial structuring or skill accumulation? So one way to do this is to split a world into a high-density and a low-density world. Well, that's easy to imagine. So when you get that, if you watch, you get, again, the white heat of technology over here, but much less over here. The average skill levels are much lower in this low-density region. And you can, you can do this simulation across any, every, I mean, we, every single set of parameters we tested, we got the same thing. This is one example, but there are many, many different combinations of skill complexity or population density and so on and so on. They consistently give the same answer, which is that you get consistently more technology maintained in high-density areas than low-density areas, even though the division here is imaginary. There's nothing, there's no wall. People can migrate across that boundary. It's just lower density on this side and higher density on this side. That's easy to envisage, of course. Some areas have higher carrying capacities than others. So it's easy to envisage the Paleolithic world being structured according to population density. That's 
Okay, but another one is that, what about if we have the same population density, but we have different migratory ranges? Now, that's also easy to envisage. So if you're living in an environment that's basically open savanna, it's easy to wander around. If you're living in dense forest, it's considerably harder to migrate longer distances. So you can easily imagine that um, the Paleolithic world was separated into areas of high migratory activity or long distance migratory to and, and low. And it's, it's the same with subsistence strategies. So if people have subsistence strategies that involve chasing um, mammoths over large distances or some animal over large distances, you'd expect them to have higher migratory activities. So we can split the, our world into same density, but higher migratory activity, migratory activity, lower migratory activity. And again, consistently, you get structuring of accumulation of technologies. Okay, so you get higher accumulation of or maintenance of skills and technologies in this area than you do in this area. Despite the fact there's no barrier to movement of people between the two. It's just that they don't move as far here. Okay, so the results of that are that the accumulation of culturally inherited skill is dependent upon population density and or migratory range or, and or, to an extent, the number of interacting groups, but only when the number of interacting groups is less than 100. Above that, it it's pretty much has no effect. This, this bit has no effect. Geographic differences in local subpopulation density can lead to stable differences in the accumulation of culturally inherited skill, and, and geographic heterogeneity in migratory range, which could easily reflect terrain and so on, can lead to stable differences in the accumulation of cultural skills. Okay, so that's, that's great, um, and it might go some way towards explaining these strange patterns in the accumulation of, or the appearance of modern human behavior. But the first thing is, this is these are models, right? Models are great. I think models are really, really great, but of course, most, most, most scientists are empiricists, and so we need some sort of empirical evidence for this. So this is a recent study uh, published by uh, uh, Michelle Klein and Rob Boyd where they looked in Oceania and they looked at different island groups with different population sizes. And you can be fairly confident about population sizes in, in islands, okay, to a, to at least to a first order approximation. And they also characterized those populations according to whether they have high contact or low contact with neighboring islands. And then they, and these were at the point of European contact, they were the, the breadth of toolkits. So they looked at two parameters. One is the number of different tools that they had, and another is using the mean techno units um, uh, of, of different tools. So this was, this was based on uh, Oswald's um, uh, definition. So this is, okay, so I'll read this out. An integrated, physically distinct, and unique structural configuration that contributes to the form of a finished artifact. Now, of course, that, I'm sure there's a little bit of wobble in there, but anyway, I mean, as a first order approximation, that should, that should be a measure of toolkit complexity and the maintenance of the skills needed to make those tools. And in both cases, they found a strong correlation with population size in those different islands. Not only that, though I don't think this is very significant, but if you look at this, at this, this, um, this, this fit here, if you then look at where the low contact ones are, so these are um, the diamonds, in general, the low contact ones are actually lower than the high contact ones. 
So not just population size, but possibly also degree of contact with other populations is influencing the extent of maintenance of technologies. Not just ask a quick clarification. Of course. Was uh, the estimation of the number of tools done uh, blind to the hypothesis and or blind? Yeah, I believe it was. I believe it was already recorded. No. Yeah, yeah, as I understand it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you have, I'll, I'll have to reread the paper to be 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that was the case. Yeah. Okay, so fine, there's some empirical evidence as well, but the key question is, does this model explain the appearance of modern human behavior in different parts of the world at different times? What we're really asking, or one of the questions we're really asking is, is there evidence of significant population growth around the time when we see uh, the appearance of modern human behavior. Well, fortunately, somebody who was um, here uh, up until about a year ago, sorry, uh, uh, Quince Nakinson and his colleagues, um, including Russell, Russell's not here, right? But including Russell. Um, uh, they, they did analysis using, um, using whole mitochondrial genomes, and they use a, a, a technique called uh, Bayesian skyline analysis. So this was a method that was actually developed here in Oxford quite a few years ago, um, where you can take mitochondrial data, and the, the distribution of coalescence states is acts or gives you information about population sizes at different points in the past. It loses resolution the further you go back in time, but it does give you some information about those, about those population sizes in time. So it's an inference methodology for estimating population sizes at different points in time. It does have some very important assumptions that aren't always met, and I'll want to discuss those in a bit. But this is, the, this is their basic result. So this is different regions of the world and when population started growing. And is there any evidence for increases in population size around 50,000 years ago? Well, I think there is, quite clearly. Now, what they've done here is they've split the world into a number of different geographic regions. And, and then they've done that analysis separately for each of those different geographic regions. So. We can now ask a question. Let's just say, well, we know absolutely for sure that the Upper Paleolithic occurred or appeared around 40, 45,000 years ago in Europe. We know that was a very clear-cut case, and we also have some estimates of population size um, in Europe around that time, albeit with, with, with quite wide error, um, error confidence intervals. But let's just say, okay, what was the population size estimate in Europe and Western Asia around the time when we see the Upper Paleolithic transition? And let, let's then, just for the sake of argument, set that as the threshold population density. So divide it by the, the area, the surface area of the region, the habitable surface area, um, and then set that as the critical threshold population density above which you need to go in order to start accumulating the kind of uh, skills necessary to make these markers of modern human behavior. So we did that for Europe, and then we asked, and we found this critical effective population density. Then we asked, when did that occur in sub-Saharan Africa? And it occurred then in sub-Saharan Africa. When did it occur in North Africa and the Middle East? It occurred then in North Africa and the Middle East. So this is when we see the first markers of modern human behavior in Africa. This is when we see the, in, and this is when we see the first markers of modern human behavior in North Africa and the Middle East. So there's an extremely good correlation there. In fact, a scarily good correlation there. 
However, it doesn't work very well for Southern Asia and Southeast Asia, and it doesn't work very well for Northern and Northeast Asia. Now, I'm going to explain why I think that is. Yeah, okay, so what, so what we've done is we've said, okay, let's set the point at which we see the appearance of uh, modern human behavior in, in Europe, and let's then ask what at that point in time was the estimated effective population size. Then we divide that by the habitable area of that region, and that gives us a critical effective population density. This is translated from effective population sizes. They're not census population sizes, because it's coming from genetic data. So that's a very important thing to remember. So, sorry, just so that I understand. You took quantitative numbers, and you divided definitely the land size. Mm. Habitable land size, yes. We didn't include Scandinavia. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we have a very good fit here. We have a lot of consistency. We basically, we're getting the same population density at the time when we see the, those markers of modern human behavior in Europe, Western Asia, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and in the North Africa and the Middle East. But we're not getting that, that fit with Southern Asia and North Africa. So why is that? Well, this approach is this approach only works under the assumption of panmixia, that the population from which that data comes is unstructured. If you impose structure on a population, then that will, that will invalidate, to a large extent, the, the inferences about the population size. And that's, there's a simple reason for that. If you structure populations, they maintain diversity independently in those populations. And that gives the impression of a bigger population overall. Okay. So we now have to ask ourselves, are these, ignore Australia and, and the new world, because there wasn't really enough data anyway. So in the, this part of the old world, the substantial part of the old world, are these regions justified? Well, both Rosenberg and colleagues back in 2002 and also Lyon, Lyon colleagues in 2008 took whole genomic data and then they, they used an approach called structure to estimate or to get an idea of how genetic variation is structured at a broad level globally. I, and this, is, and this, this method structure, what it does is it tries to optimize people's uh, 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 belonging to different groups or different clusters so that you optimize Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium, which means that you're essentially um, uh, you're, you're trying to get the best fit for population groups that are effectively random mating. Okay. And both Rosenberg and also Lai you, uh, came to the, basically the same conclusions. Sub-Saharan Africa is a cluster. The Middle East is a cluster, albeit with some admixture from Europe. Europe acts as a cluster. Central and Southern Asia acts as a cluster, and East Asia acts as a cluster. Okay? But this is Southern and East Asia. This is East and Central Asia. So what they're using here is they're using populations that undoubtedly have been structured. Now, of course, you don't need to look at this to know that. You just have to go there. I mean, people in India look very different from people in Southeast Asia, and same with people in East Asia and people in Central Asia. 
So quite clearly what they're doing is they're, they're, they're strongly breaking the assumption of panmixia or anything near panmixia for those regions, but they are not breaking that assumption of panmixia for these regions. And these are the regions where we get the best fit, the best agreement. So what about this disappearance? Um, of, of modern human behavior, or markers of it, at least, in Africa. If you look at this, is, this color here is, the Afri is Africa, right? So you see this growth, but not much growth um, uh, in the last 50,000 years, but you see more just continuous growth going all the way back there. Well, what you don't see is a dip. So you don't see a population size decrease that would explain the loss of behavioral complexity in Africa. However, firstly, this method that's used is notoriously bad at finding dips. It's good at finding growth and bad at finding dips. And so just to that's the question. Secondly, we do know that in fact in that period of time, in that time window where we see a loss of, uh, uh, of uh, technological complexity in sub-Saharan Africa, this was a bad time. So we see an increase, uh, a reduction in temperature, an increase in dust deposition, and so on. So there are environmental changes afoot in that region that may well have driven, uh, may well have driven reduction in population density just below that critical threshold that's necessary to maintain the skills that are used to make these markers of modern human behavior. Of course, there are other reasons why we may get this pattern. So the obvious one is deposition bias. Lower population size means fewer artifacts, means fewer found. Therefore, less evidence for modern human behavior. So that should also drive some correlation. And we have other factors that we have to take into account. So we can think of this as more of a chicken or egg. We have increased population size. We are now arguing, and we, we have a model to explain, it leads to greater uh, accumulation of culturally inherited skills. So that would lead to increased technology. But increased technology, of course, can also lead to better exploitation of resources and drive up population size. So not denying that there is this feedback loop. There's no doubt. Of course, population size is also driven by climate and ecology. Also, increased population size may, increased population size improves um, uh, biological natural selection. For sure. So that this is I put as a dotted line. Maybe this is just speculation, really. Pretty sure that this is true. I'm pretty sure this is true, and I'm pretty sure that's true. Not so sure about this, but maybe increased population size allowed the uh, biological evolution of uh, traits that improve cognition as well, brain mutations, whatever you want to call them, and that would have also led perhaps to increases in technology. But I think that's much, much more speculative. So we're not saying this is the only explanation, it's not the only component in the process of the appearance of modern human behavior, but it's a critical factor in holding back or in, or in preventing the loss of technologies. Without those population densities, those technologies will be lost. That's, that's the basic prediction. So just to summarize, what does this tell us? Cultural sophistication reflects human interaction, not human intelligence, to an extent. 
Now, if that's the case, and of course it requires, there, it requires certain cognitive machinery in order to actually you know, uh, transmit these skills in the first place. And I'm not su suggesting for, any, for one second that you, you could do this with a, an, uh, with a mouse or something. You require a, you know, the cognitive apparatus we've got. But the argument here is that it wasn't an changing cognition that actually drove the manifestations we see in the archaeological record. That it, that's, that's not necessary, that you could explain that by population density alone. So that means that if we had the brains to behave in a modern way, long before we started behaving in a modern way, then that also means that we could not have evolved our brains for that purpose. We could not have evolved our cognitions to do the clever things that crop up in the archaeological record. So if that's the case, then it begs the question, which I'm sure every one of you has an answer to, um, why did we evolve clever brains in the first place? And then just lastly is, is the idea that a successful innovation depends less on how smart you are than how, <laughs> how connected you are is perhaps as relevant today as it was 50,000 years ago. Okay, so I'll just uh, finish by thanking uh, people I work with on this project. So Adam Powell, PhD student, and Stephen Shannon at the Institute of Archaeology in London. Thank you.